From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. So we are recording today on Election Day, and we are going to take a step back and look at some of the pillars of democracy and some of the threats to those pillars. Our guest this week is Robert Lieberman, who is the author with Suzanne Mettler of a new book called Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. He's also the Krieger Eisenhower Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University, a really well-known, well-regarded political scientist. We're lucky to have him on the show this this week. And Rob will take us through those four pillars and those four threats. And I thought in this beginning section, it would be good to really take even a step further back than that and talk about what exactly do we mean by democracy? When you ask some people about democracy in the U.S., they'll say it's not even a democracy at all. It's a republic. So uh, what do you guys make of that argument? And Michael, I know it's come up in our Mood of the Nation poll recently as well. On a poll back actually before COVID, so this was in September of 2019, and then again in January of this year, we asked people on our poll an open-ended question, which was, of all the things you like about democracy, which ones do you value the most? And we had lots of interesting answers. We'll talk about some of them on the show today, but, but let me start with one that took us aback a little bit, and that was a series of answers, mostly from Republicans, that insisted that we are not a democracy. Uh, to quote a woman from uh, California, we are not a democracy. We are a republic. Get that straight. Or a gentleman from Arkansas who said, America is a republic, not a democracy dummy. And a lot of these answers had this sort of uh, suggestion at the end of them that we didn't really know what we were talking about by arguing that our republic is actually a democracy. Uh, but Chris, uh, I think a republic can be a democracy. This is such a longstanding rant, and it is almost entirely by Republicans, and it has a long and ignominious tradition in American politics. It actually, it actually it, dates back to the America First movement. Right. Well, and to the John Birch Society, right? Yep. And it's wrong. It's just wrong. If a student says two plus two equals five, or Carson City is the capital of Virginia— that's wrong. <laughs> and to say that we are not a democracy is wrong. And, you know, yes, we are not Athens. We don't have 30,000 people who are showing up in a forum and voting everything with majority rule. But that doesn't in any way change the fact that the people are sovereign here. The people rule. And that is the definition of democracy. Full yes. stop. And yes, it's I mean, fine to be wrong. It's not fine to be wrong in a way that undermines democracy, not just here, but around the world. And yes, I, I will mean, stop there, but it, that's why it makes me angry. <laughs> yes. I mean, democracy is a system of representative government organized around competitive elections. So obviously a republic, which is a democracy with representation, as opposed to direct democracy, is a form of democracy. There are all kinds of forms that democracy can take. We've explored several of them on this show, but it is a response that I think is meant to suggest that there are fears among many with too much popular control. I think that's true. But and fears and, of and losing. That is, 
obviously part of the founding generation as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they were scared to death of too much democracy. But I have the strong suspicion that what's going on now is this notion that democracy is about majority rule and republic seeks to find ways of constraining majority rule and to give some power to the minority. And so therefore, that's why two representatives for every state, even though it's hopelessly undemocratic, and the electoral college giving power to states that it's inordinate with their size, that's legitimate. And the reason it's legitimate is because it maintains some power in the hands of the minority. Even though, as we've said, both the Senate, two senators per state, and the Electoral College are the products of political compromise. There was no notion that this was the more responsible, the more prudent way of organizing a society. Yeah. So I wonder if we're actually approaching a moment and we approach, we do have these moments in American politics where we're going to approach a moment of reform. There have been points in American politics, I'm thinking most recently of maybe, well, doesn't feel very recent, but thinking of, for example, the progressive era, when we moved to the direct election of senators, when there were lots of other actions that were taken to change democracy in a way that was intended to actually bring people closer to control of their government. No, that's right. And, and you know, more recently is the civil rights era. With of course, the civil, the civil rights, rights era and the, civil, rights the voting rights act, which is, you know, which was profoundly important. Sure. So maybe um, we're approaching a moment like that. I think it would behoove all of us. None of us know how we're going to come out of this pandemic. But it does seem to me that this could be the sort of opportunity for change when you come out of it. It certainly could. Yeah. And thinking about some of those bigger trends and looking at our current moment in a bigger context is, I think, a good way to transition into the interview. This book is certainly a book of political science, but it's also a book of political history. And it looks back at some of the other crisis points throughout our country's history, whether it's the Civil War or the Great Depression. They talk about Watergate some as well. And if we are at or or coming up to Another one of those moments, I think, taking a look back at some of those historical moments can be really instructive. So let's get to it. Let's uh, go now to my interview with Rob Lieberman. Robert Lieberman, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you today about your book, co-authored with Suzanne Mettler, called Four Threats. But before we dive into some of those threats to American democracy and the kind of historical context for those, uh, I I also really appreciated this book because it gives a, a clear definition of what we're talking about when we say democracy. I think we you know, live in a time where the word kind of gets thrown around and it means different things to different people. But you and Suzanne in, in the book, I think, lay out four very clear attributes of what you mean when you're talking about democracy. So I thought maybe we could start there, if you can walk us through what those four attributes are. Yeah. Overall, what we mean by democracy is a system of representative government that is organized around competitive elections that provide an opportunity for citizens to hold officeholders, uh, those in power, accountable. As we describe it in the book, that has what we call four pillars, four 
things that have to be in place in order for democracy to really be robust. So I'll mention them quickly and then run through each of them. Free and fair elections, the rule of law, the idea of a legitimate opposition, and what we call the integrity of rights. So by free and fair elections, we mean just that, elections in which voting rights are widespread, in which votes are counted equally, in which access to the ballot is widespread, and in which there's no fraud or, you know, we can be confident that the results that are reported are actually the way people voted. The rule of law is the idea that being in power doesn't give you special privileges, that the law applies equally to everyone, and that it's impossible or at least very difficult for people in power to use their position of power to tilt the playing field in their favor or to evade the law. The idea of a legitimate opposition is an interesting one, something that we found was a real challenge through much of American history. The idea that if you and I disagree about something, that makes us opponents, it makes us antagonists in an electoral setting, but we're not enemies, that we're all part of a common society with a common purpose. And even if we might have differences about how to achieve those purposes, we can disagree and compete in a democratic competition without being enemies. And then the integrity of rights is just refers to the protection of the rights that are really necessary for democratic politics to proceed. Uh, civil rights, civil liberties, voting rights, these have to be widespread and well protected in order for democracy to be really robust. Great. I'm wondering how important it is for there to be some sense of agreement on those pillars in, in order to really perceive the threats clearly or have agreement on what those threats are. And, and also to what extent in some of the previous periods in history you describe in the book, there was that kind of common understanding of what these pillars of democracy were, even though there might have been partisan conflict, was there still that kind of baseline understanding as, as you've just described it? Yeah. Well, the good news is today, most Americans believe in these things. If you look at public opinion surveys about democracy and about democratic values, most Americans share a belief in you know, free and fair elections and the rule of law and rights and want to support them. But what we see when we look at these periods of fragility in American history is that these were moments when these pillars were really at risk of crumbling. So free and fair elections in the 19th century, in the 1850s in Kansas, as we described, leading up to the Civil War, elections were repeatedly full of fraud and violence and intimidation. In the 1890s in North Carolina, another period that we write about, elections were again confronted with violence. And, and in one case that we write about pretty extensively, even a violent overthrow of the outcome of a legitimate election. So just as an example, free and fair elections are not something that we can take for granted. That's one of the things we learn from looking at this history. Right. Let's dive into the threats as you, you lay them out. They are political polarization, racial inequality, economic inequality, and executive aggrandizement. So maybe we can kind of take them one by one and kind of lay out some of how I think these are things that we have talked about on this show many times before, but I think the historical context that you bring in this book might be new or at least a very 
far gone memory for for some of our listeners, things that they might have learned along the way or, you know, something like that. So let's start with political polarization. Yeah, first of all, I should back up a little bit and say that these are threats that we know mostly from the study of comparative politics, from the study of the rise and fall of democracy elsewhere. These are things that we know are threatening to democracy or challenging for democracy or make democracy difficult to sustain. Polarization, obviously, is something that people have written about an enormous amount and are thinking about a lot in American politics now. And I think to some extent we knew that it was a historical phenomenon and it rises and falls. But polarization takes a number of forms. It's not just wide disagreement about policy or about what the government should do. That's part of it. But it also is a strategic phenomenon when elections are very closely fought and when there's a real sense that either side can win and could win a fair election, then the incentive, the temptation to close ranks on each side, to think of politics as a team sport and to prioritize winning, beating the other team over just about anything else becomes paramount. And that's what we've seen repeatedly at a number of times in American history. So the 1790s, these founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, who didn't really believe in parties, immediately found themselves in the government with very different ideas about policy and the direction the country should go and what the government should look like, and immediately started to form up these teams that engaged in this partisan warfare, essentially, that almost brought the country down. And you saw that again in the 1850s and again in the 1890s, and you see it again today. So political polarization takes this strategic teamsmanship form. But at another level or another layer of polarization is that you also increasingly today see it among citizens. So we sort ourselves out by political affiliation and by partisan affiliation, who we live with, who we work with, who we go to school with increasingly we're sorting ourselves out politically. And people are motivated increasingly by what political scientists call negative partisanship, the idea that people are extremely motivated by their dislike for the other side as much or more than their affinity for their own side, right? So again, politics becomes a team sport and what's the overriding goal is just to beat the other team. And that can lead to the degradation of democracy when beating the other team gets to the point where it's more important or overrides other goals, democracy can suffer. Yeah. And to that point about sorting, I wonder kind of lurking in in the background or maybe not, maybe more in the foreground, depending on where we are in history, like how much the racial and economic inequality aspects might tie into this? Is it useful to think about them as part of this polarization or is it more helpful to think of them as separate threats kind of in and of themselves? Well, I think they're separate. But one of the things that we learned as we were writing the book is that what's really perilous is the combination of threats. Polarization doesn't necessarily entail racial conflict, but there have been moments in history when what we call conflict over membership in the community, disagreement about which groups count as full members of society and are accorded full status and full rights, and which other groups are sort of on the outside, that usually expresses itself in the United States as conflict over race or immigration. 
when polarization, political and partisan polarization, have coincided with conflict over race, as in the 1850s and the 1890s and again today, that's a particularly explosive combination. So it's not inherent in the idea of polarization. It's the combination that's dangerous. Right. And I think we'll get to this shortly, but uh, spoiler alert is that we are facing all four of these threats simultaneously right now. If you haven't pieced together, that's where this is all leading. But before we get there, the one that is perhaps a little bit different in this framework we've just been talking about is the use of executive power. And I think you, you trace this starting to FDR, if I recall correctly, which is perhaps a little bit of a different take than the conventional wisdom of, of how that period of history is thought about or taught in schools and, and such. Yeah, this is very much a story of the 20th century. And obviously, the growth of the presidency and the expansion of presidential power begins before Franklin Roosevelt. But you're right, we start the story with Roosevelt, who takes power. It's important to recall that Roosevelt takes power in a moment of deep, deep crisis of democracy. Democracies are crumbling in Europe. It's the bottom of the trough of the Depression in in March of 1933. And people are looking to him to be the savior of liberal democracy in the United States and in the West. And he begins his presidency with an extraordinary act of presidential power. Two days after he's inaugurated, he declares a bank holiday and just shuts down banks in the country to buy his administration and the Congress a few days to figure out how to stabilize the financial system and prevent the Depression from getting worse. People expected him to and were eager for him to assume this kind of power. And in fact, this liberal columnist, Walter Lippmann, told him privately, he said, you know, you're going to have to assume dictatorial power in order to get us out of this. Over the course of the New Deal in the 1930s and through the war in the 40s, he doesn't really assume the kind of dictatorial power that we observe leaders in Europe assuming. But he did leave the presidency with much greater power than when he took over. A lot of that because Congress gave it to him. Congress gave him policy authority. Congress expanded the administrative state, which uh, was under executive direction. And Congress gave the presidency a lot of resources to control what the government does, expanded the White House staff, allowed him to reorganize the government to improve his managerial control. He didn't get everything that he wanted. His court packing plan in 1937 failed, for example. But less well known are a couple of things that, one thing in particular that Roosevelt did in 1940, which was to sign a secret memo that was actually authored by J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, authorizing secret and illegal wiretapping against, Roosevelt was very worried about Nazi and to some extent communist, but mostly Nazi subversion in the United States. And so he signed this order giving the FBI the authority to wiretap illegally suspected spies or agents. And he said, you know, mostly foreign nationals, but if you have to go after or look at U.S. citizens, that's okay too. So this becomes the template for later presidents as the national security state develops over the middle of the late 20th century, as the intelligence services expand. It gives presidents an extraordinary toolkit to use to turn into a weapon 
for their own political purposes, and which is exactly what Richard Nixon does in Watergate and the associated scandals in the 1970s. The executive aggrandizement didn't begin with Franklin Roosevelt, but he's really a key part of the story. You spend a lot of time in the book writing about the time leading up to and the time after the Civil War. And I think there's any number of people out there looking to make some of those comparisons or at least think about it. Are we heading for the next Civil War or are we already on that path now? And I'm wondering how you're thinking about some of these questions, given the history that you present in the book. Yeah, this is one of the I guess for us kind of surprising through lines to the book was the recurrence of violence around these political moments of crisis. I mean, beginning in the 1790s when there were occasionally violent clashes between Federalists and Republicans, and even in the Whiskey Rebellion in Western Pennsylvania, which was a tax revolt, essentially, we went just up to the edge of armed conflict between the federal government and armed rebels, essentially, with George Washington, the president of the United States, actually himself leading troops on horseback. By the time they arrived, the rebels had fled. So there was not actually an armed confrontation. But that violence over political conflict, when it gets really pitched like this, is more common than I think we usually imagine in American democracy. So we see it again in the 1850s, Of course, with the Civil War, but even in the years leading up to the Civil War in Kansas, as we write about, you see it in the South in the 1890s. You see it in the 1930s. We open the chapter about the 1930s with the story of the Bonus Army, these sort of poor, bedraggled World War I veterans who, at the depths of the Depression in 1932, come to Washington and peacefully protest and march against the government for early payments of a pension that had been promised to them later. They're cleared out by the D.C. police and the army, led by Douglas MacArthur and Dwight Eisenhower. So this is a repeating pattern. And I think it's a measure of, or a symptom of, this sort of conflictual politics that arises periodically when these threats arise and and combine. Right. And these conflicts, though, throughout history have ended, or at least the kind of violent parts of them have ended. And I I think you write that that's because oftentimes the civil rights and civil liberties of African-Americans and others have been restricted. That's kind of the bargain or the compromise that was struck in order to kind of keep things moving forward. Is that right? Yeah, that's one of the very sobering patterns is that a number of times in these moments of crisis, the resolution, if you will, of the crisis is to preserve democracy, but in a restricted form, democracy for some, democracy primarily for white Americans at the expense of African Americans or others. Sometimes, as in the 1890s, what you see is after several decades of black political rights and empowerment during Reconstruction, you see a rollback of that, real backsliding with several million African-American men in the South having voting rights removed from them. That's one version of this settlement. An alternative is in the 1930s, for example, when at the peak of the Jim Crow period, when the Roosevelt administration more or less you know, helps preserve democracy against the, what seemed to be a real threat, but does so without really challenging or doing anything more than tokenism to undermine the system of white supremacy that sort of undergirded the government at that time. So that's a repeated pattern. 
there's this sort of undercurrent of white supremacy and systemic racism that runs through the entire history of American democracy and constrains it. Occasionally, that becomes itself the dividing line of conflict, as it was, say, in the 1890s or 1850s, and as it is again today. Sometimes it's just there under the surface. But what that says to us is the real challenge of American democracy, of building American democracy and moving American democracy forward, is that. How do we build a real multiracial democracy, a real democracy a robust democracy that is inclusive across lines of race, across groups. And that's the formula that history suggests we haven't really found yet. Yeah, nor thinking about the comparative perspective. There aren't really other examples throughout the world that we can look to in a, in a meaningful way either, right? No, that's exactly right. I know you say toward the end of the book about democracy should be issue number one on your ballot as you're looking to that as you're heading into the voting booth this fall and even, you know, well beyond. I'm wondering if you could say a little more about what that looks like. I mean, no, I don't think we're at a place yet where anyone running for office is going to to necessarily say I'm against democracy, right? So everybody is, of course, going to say, again, this going back to where we started, democracy kind of gets thrown around and, you know, people just use it to paint whatever picture they want to paint with it. So what should people be thinking about or how can you kind of operationalize that putting democracy first? We know that when these threats are lower, then democracy has a better chance of surviving. But I think taking on the threats frontally, taking on polarization, taking on economic inequality and racial conflict directly is a tall order. But I think what people can focus on and think about are these pillars, free and fair elections, the rule of law, the legitimacy of the opposition and the integrity of rights. So thinking about how candidates or policy proposals or parties are addressing these issues, thinking about whether making this or that move or selecting this or that candidate or this or that policy will advance or retard those things, I think is the most productive way that people can think about this problem. But this is a centuries-long project at this point. Sometimes it expands and we do well. Sometimes it contracts and we backslide. So maybe trying to get out of that of the moment thinking, at least to the extent that we can right now, might seem like a a useful way to frame these things as well. John Lewis, in the essay that was published in the New York Times on the day of his funeral, wrote, democracy is not something that we are, it's something that we do. And I think that is a really profound way of describing American democracy. It's not an on-off switch. It's not either you're a democracy or you're not. It's a continuum. And all of American history has been an attempt to take this democratic idea and this democratic destination and try and move forward to get there. And there have been times in American history when we have moved forward, and then there have been times, and these are the ones that we write about, which is one of the things that makes the book a little maybe dark, There are times when we've moved backwards. The fear is that because of the confluence of threats now, we're moving backward or we're at risk of moving backward. I think we are moving backward. So the question is not, can we suddenly snap to and become a fully robust, inclusive, complete democracy, but can we turn the ship so that we're pointing in the right direction? And even if we can do that, 
we're still far away from the goal and it's not a very fast moving ship. So it's going to be slow slogging steps and hard work to move in the right direction. But that I think is the important way to think about this. Well, Rob, I think that might be as good a place as any to leave things and uh, wrap it up. Thank you for your work on this book and thank you for joining us today to talk about it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I mean, that was great. As Jenna said, it's a really good survey of history as well as a basic democratic theory. But what struck me, Michael, was his comment that right now there are threats to all four of these pillars. This is a distinctive moment in American history. And it's tied up with race, as it often is in American history. And it's tied up with this effort of a minority in demographic terms that is only going to get smaller, seeking to do whatever it can to preserve its political power. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying much different from where you are, but I mean, I think we, we're seeing these four threats in our politics and we're seeing them in the election that we've been watching over the last couple of weeks. And I say that without any idea of how this all ends up or what the next week or weeks is going to look like. Yeah. I mean, it is weird and a little creepy to be talking about this while it's happening, but it is also true that some of these things have been going on for months, right? And, and maybe even years. The case in Texas that wanted to throw out over 100,000 votes because they were curbside ballots is there's no other way to account for that except a Republican effort to preserve their majority. It is deeply undemocratic. Yeah, I agree completely. But let's also recognize the importance that guardrails held. But what the Texas case, I mean, the Texas case was like an extreme version of what we've been seeing all over the country and in Pennsylvania quite a bit where we could well be back in court again very, very soon. So it is worth reflecting on why this is going on, not just that it's going on and that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to come up with benign explanations for what's going on. But why is this? And why do people think it's okay? And I think the way to account for that is that we're in an era where things are so polarized and there's so much negative partisanship, animosity towards the other side. And there's actually been polling about this that each side sees the other as some kind of fundamental existential threat to the future of the nation. And when you see that, when you genuinely believe that to be the case, then it becomes far more legitimate and maybe even necessary for you to use any means necessary to maintain your power. If you don't see the change of election as being just another expression of democracy, it goes on forever, there's going to be another election, and we just got to hold fire and try to preserve our, create a majority so we can win the next one. If that's not what you think, but you think that if the Republicans or if the Democrats get in, everything that I value is under threat and could come to an end. If you believe that, then it is far more likely that you're going to do things that are 
deeply undemocratic, if not genuinely criminal. Yeah. I mean, I thought this was one of the stronger parts of Rob's interview and material that he and, and Susan Mettler and others have been writing lately about how polarization undercuts these pillars. Because what you're describing there is that polarization leads people to, for one thing, not see the opposition as legitimate, but rather as enemies. Right, not as opponents, but enemies. Now, I mean, it's important to note, it really is important, I think, to recognize that younger Republicans also really value popular will in democracy and maybe feel a little bit lost at times because of it. But this is a generational thing. But for the most part right now, the Democrats are a younger party and the Republicans are an older party. And I, I wonder if very different conceptions of what democracy actually is enter into this as well. The one thing I would want to say that I think is both positive and true is something that you mentioned to me, Michael, which is that when you went to vote today, there were young people who were kind of standing in for older folks who were more at risk for COVID. Yeah. And you've seen things like that happen all over the nation. You've seen people mobilized to vote at levels that we haven't seen in a long, long time. And in the midst of this pandemic, when there are so many court cases being brought up and so many states are taking on the challenge of counting and processing millions of more votes than usual, they've actually done a pretty good job. It's not been perfect, but it's never perfect. And despite all these challenges, all I'm saying is that so far, I mean, this again could come out sounding really bad in the future, but so far, American democracy has done There's aspects of American democracy that have stood up to this challenge of this election and have acquitted themselves well. So thanks to Rob Lieberman. It's a good book. And Janet for a good interview. And uh, thanks to you for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.